Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Robert Krikorian. Robert Krikorian is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience and director of the Cognitive Aging Program at the University of Cincinnati Academic Health Center. He earned a bachelor's and master's degree in philosophy from Boston University, a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Cincinnati, and completed a fellowship in clinical neuropsychology in the departments of neurology and neurosurgery. Dr. Krikorian is interested in the influence of health conditions on memory decline with aging and risk for Alzheimer's disease. He directs a clinical program that provides neurocognitive diagnostic services and lifestyle coaching and a research program investigating nutritional interventions to forestall cognitive aging and progression of neurodegeneration. His current research involves investigations of the effects of berry fruit supplementation and nutritional ketosis on cognitive function and metabolism in middle-aged individuals with increased risk for late-life dementia. In the episode, Dr. Krikorian shares how a low-carb diet may positively impact cognitive decline, why we should be eating more blueberries, some common misconceptions about dementia and Alzheimer's, and more. Do me a favor. While you're listening, take a selfie, post it to social media, tag me at The Health Investment, and let me know your takeaways. I love seeing you in action and learning your favorite parts of each episode. Okay, it's time to hear from Dr. Krikorian. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, so visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Krikorian. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm excited to hear all of your research about aging and dementia and just how to keep our brains as healthy as possible. Hello to you, and uh, I'm happy to be here. I'd love if you could start by sharing your background and specifically what led you to become a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience. Um, Well, I um, actually... Started out um, in college being interested in astronomy, and uh, that was at Boston University. And I I was in the astronomy program for a year, and then decided to switch to philosophy, which I did do. And then that was my undergraduate degree. And then I actually entered a PhD program in philosophy as well, and then took. Uh, a leave for a few years, and I was in the rock and roll business during that time. Came back to school, but at that point, I decided I wanted to um, go into psychology. Um, I was interested, I actually became interested in psychoanalysis. 
So I um, subsequently entered a program in psychology um, and didn't like it very much and then transferred uh, to the program at the University of Cincinnati. And I, I did stick there and, and got my degree in, uh, in psychology and uh, along the way did did a little bit of work with a supervisor in, in neuropsychology, clinical neuropsychology. Actually, it was toward the end of my uh, time in graduate school. I was working on my dissertation. Um, and that, uh, that, that what I thought would be a, a brief experience turned into 18 months of a fellowship. And, and then I uh, was hired very quickly after that into the psychiatry department as a neuropsychologist. And, uh, um, and if you stick around long enough, you you often get promoted and that's what happened to me, I guess. And my, my interests have changed a lot over time. Um, uh, earlier on, I got interested in, in neuropsychological instrument development and, and created some measures of attention and executive ability and, and memory. Uh, and then I was um, uh, involved in some actually research with AIDS patients for a while. And, um, and then I became interested in nutrition um, and, uh, and, and then aging and, and dementia prevention. And, uh, and that's what's occupied me for the last several years, the last 10, 10 12 years. Did your interest in nutrition come just from your own life or was that connected to some research you were doing? It, uh, it came from my own life, actually. I, um, I became aware of calorie restriction. Um, I'm not sure if uh, you know much about that, but that's, um, there's, a, there's a relatively large body of, of research in, uh, in animals on calorie restriction. Uh, which is uh, very briefly just uh, providing providing animals with adequate nutrition um, and avoiding nutrition deficiencies, but reducing their calories um, uh, on a on a chronic basis, so that cutting calories by twenty percent, twenty five, or even some some experiments have done forty or fifty percent uh, restriction of calories. And, um, and actually there's a, there's, there are some, uh, human clubs or groups, uh, that, uh, where the members practice calorie restriction. And, um, I got interested in, in that as a, as a health promoting activity and a life extension or health extension activity as well. Um, and I did a lot of reading in that regard and um, came to, to think about and understand nutrition as um, one of the most important, if not the most important um, lifestyle factor with, uh, with respect to health and longevity. I mean, if you think about lifestyle factors, um, the, the broad, broadly the categories would be nutrition or diet um, physical activity, exercise, and, uh, and stress, stress, you know, sleep and stress control. And, um, they're, they're all important and they're probably, 
at some in some way equally important. And many of them manipulate some of the same factors, biological factors. But um, I've always thought about nutrition as perhaps a bit more important than the other two, but that may not be the case. Hmm. So then what led you to get very interested in the effects of nutritional interventions on cognitive aging? What made that leap? I, um, I mean, I think at first it was a sort of a nonspecific sense that improved nutrition can lead to improved health uh, and, and therefore to improve brain health. But um, the, other, the other sort of thread or path that, that was occurring very early on was I happened on an article, you know, after I'd, I'd already begun to be interested in um, nutrition and calorie restriction, I happened on an article um, about blueberries um, reversing uh, performance, cognitive and motor performance deficits in aging mice. And, um, and that work was done in the laboratory of a man named James Joseph, who was uh, a U.S. Department of Agriculture employee and based in Boston, and he, had, and he was also on the faculty at Tufts University. And at the, same, at the time I happened on that article, I was on a commit, an educational committee in the department. And so I had the opportunity to invite him to come and do a talk at our, uh, in our department, which I did. And he accepted and came for a talk. And I met him. I spent just a few hours with him. I met him in the morning for coffee and, and then he did his talk and I, I rode, rode the elevator with him um, down. He was taking a cab back to the airport right away. And, uh, you know, I was thanking him for coming and saying too bad. We, we didn't live, you know, closer together. We might be able to do some research and without skipping a beat, he looked up at me and he said, do you want to write a grant? <laughs> and I spent the next nine to 12 months uh, actually writing two or three grants with him. We, d we didn't get funding at that point, but uh, we, we sort of developed a relationship. And he had been, he'd done a lot of animal research on, on blueberries specifically and other nutrient factors and, and was very keen, very anxious to, to translate this to humans. And he was looking for someone to to help him with that human translation. And uh, I, I I responded. I mean, I was ready ready to to do this. And so uh, I I got a little bit of uh, funding and a donation of some some research product, which which turned out to be blueberry juice. And uh, um, we, we were able to conduct the first, you know, it was a very small study, but the first controlled trial with blueberries in older adults. And we got um, positive effects on memory performance uh, on a 12 week, after a 12 week intervention. And um, that sort of kicked things off. Um, and subsequently I've, well, I've done four blueberry studies now, I think, which is, I'm working on the paper for, for the fourth study. 
I've done a couple of Concord grape juice studies. I'm doing two strawberry studies now. So I've, you know, one part of my research career has been um, um, berry supplementation, essentially. Um, but then I also had become interested in, you know, partly through calorie restriction, um, knowledge about calorie restriction, I'd become interested in in ketone metabolism, ketosis. And uh, there was a little bit of literature on it. Um, uh, not much of it recent, actually, at the time I started looking into it. Um, but I just felt, I just had a feeling, a strong feeling that this would be a beneficial thing to do in humans um, with mental health problems or cognitive problems. And so we, it took a long time, a, a, a very, very little support again um, to do the research, but over about a period of four years, I was able to, um, with the help of my research coordinator, uh, perform this controlled trial uh, with six weeks of uh, carbohydrate restriction, low carb ketogenic intervention controlled with uh, another group that uh, ate us not quite a standard American diet, but probably a bit better than the standard American diet, but a higher carb diet, certainly not, not a, not a nutritional approach that would uh, lead to ketosis. And um, we got, uh, you know, when I finally analyzed the data, it was uh, extraordinary. We got uh, within, with six weeks, we, we, um, demonstrated an improvement in memory function in patients. We had selected patients with a condition called mild cognitive impairment, which is uh, thought to be a transitional uh, condition between normal aging and uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease most prominently. And so we had these people who had significant risk for dementia who were 65, 68 and older, and we improved their memory in just a matter of weeks with this intervention. And um, so published that paper and that, I think that was published in, well, now probably eight years ago, that's a while ago at this point. Um, and then we was able to do a very small follow-up paper with some brain imaging, uh, magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Uh, and that was, that second study was uncontrolled, but we, we were able to show changes in neurochemicals in the brain that are associated with improved uh, neuronal function. And we also, we did some um, cognitive assessments in that study as well and show and demonstrated uh, beneficial changes. And that was a, again, a six week design, with, um, but in that study without a control. And then subsequently, um, uh, did a study in a very small study in Parkinson's disease, um, a small control trial there, and we got extraordinary benefits. Uh, and these people were 65 and older; they were older adults on average, but but had uh, Parkinson's disease. So it was a step beyond mild cognitive impairment um, in the sense that they had uh, they had a diagnosed neurodegenerative condition. Um, and um, as I said, very, very strong uh, benefits for working memory and long-term memory uh, in that Parkinson's study. And that was published um, relatively recently within the last 18 months or so. Um, and then 
most recently, um, uh, this is unpublished work at this point, but I, we have a data set with um, a group of middle-aged individuals, pe people 50 to 65. And um, I wanted to move our work back earlier in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in development uh, because I'm very interested in prevention. There's no treatment for Alzheimer's disease or, or any sort of dementia at this point. Uh, but there's uh, strong evidence that environmental factors, that is um, stress, um, physical activity, and, and nutrition uh, have strong, uh, strong influences on risk for late-life dementia. Um, and, and the changes that begin with regard to brain function uh, seem to begin in, in middle age, actually, and health in middle age predicts one's health in late life. And it, it also, um, uh, uh, bad health or ill health in midlife increases risk for late life um, disease conditions. And so that's why I decided to move all our studies back to this 50 to 65 year old epoch in, in midlife to focus more on prevention. <clears throat> so this this recent data set that I mentioned, uh, which is not yet published, um, is, a, is a controlled trial with uh, carbohydrate restriction in that in, in individuals who are overweight, 50 to 65 overweight, and have um, subjective cognitive impairment. That is, they don't have diagnosed cognitive decline, but they, they report that their memory function is not as good as it was two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it would be. Um, and again, we showed um, improvement in working memory in these individuals in the low carb group. And we were able to do brain imaging again, spectroscopy uh, again with a subset, not the entire uh, study sample, but a subset of the sample and showed some changes in uh, neurochemicals um, again. So, um, so we've done, I guess, four studies overall with carbohydrate restriction and ketosis. And in each study, we've, we've uh, seen um, what I think of as very powerful effects in a brief period of time. Uh, you know, just the original studies were six weeks. We, the last two we've, We've gone to eight weeks, but um, but still, that's a relatively brief time to to show uh, the kinds of changes we've we've observed. Yeah! Wow! So many I have so many follow up questions. That's really all very fascinating. Back to the blueberry research, I'm wondering. You said it was a 12 week time span. So, how many blueberries were people eating in that? time span? Was it daily or weekly? Yeah, those, stu those supplement studies were daily. Uh, so people were consuming. The first study was grape juice, actually. I I'm sorry, it was blueberry juice. And okay, so right. uh, they took between 12 and 18 ounces of juice a day, depending on their body weight. And mm -hmm. so it, and it, the, it was divided up in three doses. So if you're doing 12 ounces a day, you drink four ounces with the morning meal, four ounces with the midday meal, and four ounces in the evening. Um, and, the, and 
that study and I think our second study was had a 12 week intervention. Then we did one study that was 24 weeks actually. And uh, in the most recent study, we went back to 12 weeks. After the first study though, we were able to work with um, industry sponsors to, to get powder. <clears throat> so this was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a whole fruit freeze dried uh, blueberry powder that we used and it would, would be packaged into individual dose packets. Uh, so it was much more convenient. Uh, uh, we didn't have research subjects with purple cars because a bottle of juice would break and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and those sorts of things. But, and we had much better control over, over the, the administration and, the, and particularly the dosing of the product. And then we could package a placebo as well uh, in the same way. And, and the placebo was designed to look like, smell like, taste like uh, a berry or a, a powder. And, um, and so that's, that's worked out uh, relatively well. And, and, the, and the dosage, the daily dosage was either a half cup or a whole cup, whole fruit equivalent if that makes sense. So, so the drug, you know, it might be 24, 24 grams in a packet, but that would be the dry down ratio of a whole cup of uh, blueberries. I see. So what is the kind of then recommendation that we, you know, commoners who aren't in your study and don't have access to the juice you're using? I mean, what can we do on a daily basis or even a weekly basis? I think just eat a lot of blueberries. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you know the the most recent study I went I went to one hand one half cup equivalent uh, with the blueberry powder, and that was based on some research that a colleague of mine had performed, uh, and we got we we got a significant results even with one half cup whole fruit equivalent a day, and I'm not certain that it needs to be done every day. Um, mm -hmm. Well, we, ha we actually have, uh, this is the only study I'm aware of that's shown this, but we actually have data showing that the cognitive benefits of berry supplementation, this, in this case, blueberries again, is a, was associated, statistically associated. It's not, not a, a causal demonstration, uh, but, but it is circumstantial evidence that uh, the cognitive benefits are related to ongoing consumption as opposed to, um, and, and in particular to the anthocyanins, which are the, the kinds of uh, polyphenols in uh, blueberries that, that give that deep purple and blue color. Um, so what, what I'm leading up to saying is that it seems that consumption um, in an ongoing way, whether that's every day or four times a week or whatever the schedule might be, that, that ongoing consumption is probably, at least as far as we know at this point, probably a factor in the cognitive benefits. Um, on the other hand, the metabolites, uh, there, there are lots and lots of metabolites of 
anthocyanins and the other constituents of berries, and they they seem to exist in the in the biological systems in the body for for weeks, literally. But it may not, it doesn't seem to be the metabolites as much as the the uh, the parent anthocyanins themselves. Um, I see. And then you said you're studying other berries. Are there any others that you confidently or kind of think right now have similar benefits or is it well, mostly blueberry? I mean, the other, the other studies we're doing right now, we're doing uh, two strawberry studies at the moment and strawberries contain anthocyanins and they've been studied in animals and in humans. And they've, they've got a, a somewhat different uh, polyphenol profile, but there have been benefits demonstrated with strawberries with regard to uh, metabolic function um, in humans. And I, I tend to think that all berries uh, have benefits. Um, mm-hmm. They're not all exactly the same. I think strawberries may have more metabolic benefit than blueberries, perhaps, but blueberries certainly have metabolic benefit as well. For example, in our most recent study that also was not yet published, we showed improvement in this middle-aged group that I was referring to in terms of working memory. They, they, they did better. The blueberry um, group did better. And they also showed a, uh, a reduction of fasting insulin levels. And that's been shown before in animals and in humans with glucose. Circulating glucose levels don't come down necessarily, but insulin may come down. So there's something about the anthocyanins or other constituents that perhaps improving um, uh, insulin receptor sensitivity or or some other um, mechanism that's that's allowing the body to utilize or produce less insulin and get the same um, the same level of circulating glucose. Hmm. And then in your low carb research, I'm wondering, you know, keto has become this buzzword and everybody kind of has a different definition of what it is in their life. And what does that mean for your studies, the low carb component? What is the carbohydrate intake per day? And is it mostly restriction of refined carbohydrates or also carbohydrates and vegetables? It's carbohydrates in general. Okay. Um, So that would include fruits and vegetables. And yeah, we, um, in the research, we, we try to be relatively strict, um, well, we do. We are relatively strict. We don't try. We are, yeah. but um, we prescribe 20 grams carbohydrate a day, which is very, very low. I mean, that's mm-hmm. um, that's you know a modest salad or some steamed vegetables, essentially. Um, and we and we prescribe no no fruit intake at all. So all the carbohydrate has to come from vegetables. Um, and fruits are significantly sweeter than vegetables. Uh, they're not sweet relative to candy, of course, but they but there's an appreciable difference in the in the glucose level in fruit and a redu- and much less fiber. Actually, about half five the fiber in fruit than in vegetables. So so a modest salad or some steamed vegetables once or twice a day, and that's and that's the manipulation that we do essentially. Um, uh, in that, in the low carb group, we don't, we don't advise or limit or prescribe anything about protein or fat. 
we do encourage people to eat um, healthy fats to avoid trans fats and uh, vegetable oils, but uh, we don't we don't prescribe that they need to do that. Um, and in the low carb or the high higher carb group, I should say, we we uh, we encourage vegetable intake and avoidance of sweets, um, but um, but still uh, try to have the participants maintain a, a high-ish carbohydrate approach. And, and what we've seen in our studies is that um, the carbohydrate level is by, by calories, the carbohydrate intake in the higher carb group, that is our control group, is, is around uh, 40%, which is basically what they come in consuming, 40 to 45% carbohydrates in their diet. And in the low carb group, we, whereas we prescribe 20, 20 grams a day, they're consuming about 30 to 35 grams a day. Um, so they're a little over, but, but it's not appreciably over. And, 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 that, and at that level, we can measure ketone bodies in the blood, certainly. Right. I've seen some naysayers saying that low carb really just boils down to what you were talking about earlier. That's just another form of caloric restriction. So what is the difference between just restricting calories and doing so through a low carb manner? Well, it's ketone metabolism. That's, that's the difference. I mean, if you're eating, if you're eating a high carbohydrate, uh, calorie restricted diet, presumably you won't, you, your liver won't be producing ketone bodies. I, mean, I guess it depends on how restricted it is and so forth and the, and the meal timing. But, but for most people eating a high carb, low fat, low to moderate protein diet, um, the carbohydrate level will be enough to stimulate an insulin response uh, that, will, that will inhibit ketone metabolism. Uh, insulin and ketone production are... Um, ketone levels are strongly correlated uh, inversely. So that as insulin goes up, insulin actually, the rise in insulin is the fail-safe on ketone production. It's the reason that people um, who don't have type 1 diabetes don't experience keto, ketoacidosis because the ketone production is controlled by insulin or the level of ketone production, I should say. Um, I see it. Okay, yeah. So it's, it, it, if someone is doing calorie restriction, they certainly could enter ketosis from, from time to time or be in ketosis much of the time, but it depends on the composition of the diet, I would think, mm -hmm. in terms of macronutrients. Do you recommend some type of ketosis, you know, an intervention for most people, if, even if it's just a few times a year, or is this more, you think, restrictive? <laughs> reserved for people who have some type of cognitive impairment? Well, certainly if, if, um, if I have patients, we, I also have a clinic. Um, it's a neuropsychological diagnostic clinic and we see lots of patients in the clinic and, and probably the majority, I think probably 40% of our patients are late middle-aged and older adults who have age-related uh, cognitive changes. And um, 
typically I will recommend a lower carbohydrate approach. And, you know, I've got uh, sort of template materials now that I've generated over time that, that describe and, and guide people uh, uh, away from the standard American diet. And, the, and what I focus on is lower carbohydrate, that is vegetable and selected fruits for um, carbohydrate sources and avoiding all legumes, grains, sweets, um, um, and, and those, the not so good carbohydrates, you know, avoiding vegetable oils and seed oils and focusing on animal fats and a fruit, a uh, few fruit fats like olive oil and coconut oil, um, and some other, some other things. Um, but then for some, for a subset of these patients, I will specifically recommend carbohydrate restriction to the point of ketosis, because I feel they need, they need that, or that would be beneficial to avert um, or treat a, uh, an existing dementia. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, similar to what we've, what we've observed in our, our controlled studies in my patients who do, who follow the program, so to speak, to a person, they do well. It's, it's, again, I use that word extraordinary. I don't know how extraordinary it is, but it, to me, it, it's dramatic, the changes. And, you know, anecdotally, these cases, uh, again, the, the person needs to be conscientious or at least have a spouse who can, who can help them get through uh, with, the, with the dietary changes. But when they do, they typically lose weight. And, you know, in general, these are overweight people. Um, their cognition improves. They're, they're less anxious. Some, some of the patients have gotten off benzodiazepines or anti-anxiety medications. Um, their life opens up in ways that uh, they're beneficial in terms socially in other ways. So it's been, it's been rewarding. It's been gratifying for me to, to do this with patients, but also with, um, with our research subjects. Right. What would you say are some of the biggest mes misconceptions floating around out there about dementia and specifically Alzheimer's? The misconceptions about it? Yeah. Well, this is maybe a somewhat of a backwards way of answering that question, but what, what I've noticed with our patients, for example, and some of our research subjects is that people are unaware of the connection between nutrition and dementia, mm -hmm. that what you eat actually, you know, has, has an influence on brain function or even general health. I mean, that, that, that's, it actually extends to that. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, insulin resistance, the pre-diabetes condition is an ideological, direct or indirect ideological factor in every single chronic disease condition in Western cultures, all of them, uh, including Alzheimer's disease. And, um, and insulin resistance is not, is not treated, generally speaking. It's treated by uh, physicians typically when it becomes diabetes, um, but not before that. But that doesn't mean damage isn't being done 
um, you know, and that and that insulin resistant condition can go on for five years, ten years, or more um, before diabetes is diagnosed, or even if it's never diagnosed, it's still it's still causing problems. Um, so I think it's it's. I mean, there's much more recognition now of the importance of nutrition in, in general health and brain health, but it's it's still not as widespread as I think it should be. And unfortunately, in a Western culture, with, with the standard dietary habits, it, you need that information. You need consciousness raised about it, because if you go along eating, you know, according to... Uh, television commercials and, and nutritional habits that develop in, in our culture, um, you wind up being overweight, having insulin resistance, um, dying younger in the last 10 or 15 years of your life, you're not that healthy. And that's mm -hmm. become typical now, unfortunately. Right. So it sounds like, you know, kind of an obvious statement, but the best thing to do is eat well as long as possible. But from your studies, it does seem if somebody's listening to this and has experienced some type of memory decline, or, you know, they're just not feeling as sharp as they used to, there is still hope in terms of some interventions that they can do to start oh, I think feeling so. better. I think right? so. And, and starting earlier is always better, of course. And that, that condition that I mentioned several minutes ago, that subjective cognitive impairment, which we which we have as an inclusion criteria for our middle-aged studies, um, that's actually a risk factor for late-life dementia. So at, if at age 52, for example, you're noticing that your memory is not so good, um, it's, it's, not, it's not at that point written that you will get Alzheimer's disease, but a subset of people who have that experience of themselves, that they're just not functioning as well, as they used to, um, are aware of early neurodegeneration, those, those early changes in the brain that will lead to dementia. So there, there, it is a risk factor. Hmm. Well, and I think it, that is also sort of normalized in our society is as you get older, you just start to forget things. And I think it's sometimes even kind of laughed off. But mm -hmm. it seems as if that's something to be taken very seriously and to begin an intervention as soon as possible. Yes, yes. As I said, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't always progress uh, to a to a bad outcome, but it it is a risk factor, and for some for a subset of those individuals, it does progress. Right. So might as well. I always kind of take the approach with nutrition. Eating better probably isn't going to do any harm. It can probably <laughs> only help. So, you know, not to just chalk that up to aging and there's nothing I can do about it to know that you may end up through better nutritional choices, actually preventing some serious dementia later on this, the more serious you take those. Well, of... yeah. And I think you can even make a stronger statement that if you, if you don't eat the Western diet, if you, if you adopt a, a healthier approach, you will be healthier. Mm -hmm. That's, that's relatively certain. Um, right. It's it's not quite as certain uh, to predict which disease you're going to avoid necessarily, but uh, or which diseases you will avoid. But 
uh, but you will be healthier and probably live longer. And living longer and being healthier as long as you're alive is, I mean, that's really the goal, isn't it? Uh, right. That's, uh, you know, making the most of the time we have. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, I do always find that fascinating, though, to think that you can't really trace the dots forwards. You'll never know what you ended up preventing, but you Mm -hmm. will likely prevent something, like you said, by eating better. Um, But that's always just kind of a weird thing for me to think about is you can never you can never really know. You know, that's not something you can really research, I guess. Right. Of what did we end up preventing? Well, maybe not. uh, Maybe not exactly. But I think for this, I'm going back again to this group that I've talked about, 50 to 65 year olds or even older people. But with 50 to 65 year olds have will have begun to experience, if they're aging faster, if they're if they're um, abusing their nutrition, so to speak, they will have begun to experience some of those things. They will mm. be somewhat insulin resistant. They will have more adiposity, that is, you know, more fat accumulation in the abdomen around their liver and pancreas and other internal organs. They uh, they will probably have hypertension. I mean that that is almost universal with, with abdominal weight gain within months or years of that people, people have higher blood pressure. Um, and, and other things start to happen. And if you can take action at that point, you will see some of those things reversed. Um, so in some sense you get, you do get a view into it. Right. Well, I'm so grateful for everything you shared. The final question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Well, I think we just talked about that in some yeah. ways. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a matter of um, well, it's two or three things to my mind. One is making the most of the time you have, which I think is important. Um, you know, we don't we don't have unlimited time here, and and uh, I think enjoying oneself, having gratifying experiences, and and functioning well are are important. Um, but it's also I think there's a a measure of self esteem or self respect that goes with it as well, and um, playing the cards you're dealt. You know, we're we're humans. We have certain biological tendencies um, that are pretty much universal. And, um, and unfortunately, we, we're, we're kind of, I wouldn't say stuck, but we're in a culture that 
that uh, causes many of us to be too sedentary, not to get enough physical activity, to have high stress lives, and to have poor nutrition. And to the extent possible, if you can correct those things and avoid knowing what not to eat, for example, is very important to avoid some of those negative factors. Um, you're, you're, you're playing the cards you were dealt. As I like to say you're, you're being true to yourself. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, if, someone's interested in looking up the research you've done um, or, you know, finding you online or on social media, where can they find you? Um, well, I'm, I'm at the university of Cincinnati uh, in the medical center. So just Google my name and uh, with that institutional name, and you should find some pictures of me and some other things. Um, you can also go to PubMed and uh, my name, and um, and you'll the that sort of search will return some articles uh, that some of which we've talked about today. Uh, I don't, um, I haven't developed the social media presence. Um, I've kind of avoided it, I think, but um, yeah, probably wise. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have one. I, I know a lot of. Uh, Many researchers I respect have, have done the opposite, and, and I think that's fine, but I, I just haven't, um, for whatever reasons, I haven't pursued that at this point. Right. Well, I'll put links to uh, your bio at the University of Cincinnati and then also to your research on PubMed in the show notes so that those are easily clickable. Uh, but I just want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today, and I can't wait to go buy some more blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one -on -one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.